My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? In the early years of amateur photography, the fascinating and sometimes frustrating process showed potential to peer beyond the veil. In a flash or fluke, William Mumler of 1860s Boston developed a self-portrait photograph and was shocked to find the apparition of his deceased cousin. Twelve years ago, she parted this plane, yet here she was, right before his very eyes, on the photograph. This was the first spirit photograph ever taken. And after moving to New York City, Mumler found himself in an atmosphere of spiritualism. Mumler eventually reached national fame after photographing the ghost of Abraham Lincoln looking down fondly and standing behind his widow, Mary Todd Lincoln. Soon, many took to photography to peer into the unseen world around us, and today, we venture even further with a modern-day spirit photographer whose recent book, Seance, was named one of Time's best photo books of 2019, and it offers readers a remarkable series of supernatural photographs exploring spiritualist practices and beliefs within communities found across the United States, the UK, and Europe. Shannon Taggart joins me, Mystic Mark, and my co-host, Roman, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Shannon Taggart. Photography was invented in 1839, and then spiritualism came about in 1848, so like very similar time period. And almost immediately, they were trying to use cameras to see if they could see the invisible. And so they really tried to like photograph ghosts, and some people tried to photograph proof mesmerism or mes- magnetic fluid or like the soul. There was a lot of very super interesting photography experiments going around and all of that was you know written out of the history of photography until the 1990s. All right ladies and gentlemen here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Joining me is a familiar voice. Roman will be co-hosting for this episode, but with us today is an incredible guest. I'm very excited to have her on with us. She's recently put out a great book called Seance, and we're going to be talking about spiritualism as well as this fan 
fantastically fascinating, mind-blowing concepts surrounding spiritualist photography. So without further ado, Shannon Taggart, welcome to the show and introduce yourself for the audience. Tell us a little about yourself. Okay, thanks for having me. So my name is Shannon Taggart and I am the author of the book Seance, which originally came out in 2019 and there was a reissue a new edition in 2022, and it's based on an almost 20-year, well, now it's over 20-year project on the religion of spiritualism. But before that, I worked as a photographer, commercial photographer, for like 25 years. And I was doing this project in my spare time, and I self-funded it. And I thought I would never, I thought that the subject matter was just so complicated, I would never be able to do anything with it. And it was kind of stayed a labor of love for a very long time. And then I finally put it together as a book. Wonderful. And it's Wonderful book. I was showing Roman before we started recording here. You guys were kind enough to send me a hardcover copy, and I'm glad you did because the images are just so beautiful. And I'm going to use my uh, photocopier, maybe take like one out of the uh, the book and share it with the audience as the thumbnail. But uh, what initially turned you on to this field? Were you interested in spiritualism from a young age? Did photography sort of, was that your foray into this topic? How did you first get introduced to this overall subject? Uh, so I grew up in upstate New York, near a, a town called Lilydale, New York, which is the home to the world's largest spiritualist population. And I grew up, I was raised Catholic, but my older cousins would go to Lilydale and get, you know, in the summer they do these free message services. Like you pay a small fee to get in the gates of the town. And in the summer, it kind of is open for tourists. And in a message service, you just go and you sit either there's multiple places within the town where they hold these message services, but you just sit on a seat. You don't write your name or anything. Um, it's kind of anonymous and mediums stand in the front and they pick people out of the crowd and give them short messages. And so my cousin Rita, when I was 14, uh, she went to Lilydale at one summer and sat in a message service and got picked out of the crowd by a medium and she got this message that her grandfather was there and he wanted her to know that he had choked to death and that's really how he died. And she was like, oh my God, this woman is so crazy because neither of my grandfathers had choked to death. And she went home and asked her father, who was my father's brother, so my uncle, and or she told him kind of like just making fun of it. And he was like, no, that's actually true. So our shared grandfather was dying of brain cancer, but he actually died of a choking incident. And this was known within the family, but not talked about. And so, and my mother, you know, my father never told my mother this. I mean, it wasn't like something that was shared. And so it was just really shocking. And I always thought like, since that moment, like how could a total stranger know like that family secret that had happened you know, 30 years prior and she didn't know her name or, you know, all that stuff. So that, so, but that was just like a moment. And then 
I started uh, pursuing photography around the same time in high school, but I never linked the two in my at all in any way. And of course, I was always to, you know, interested in like spooky stories or paranormal themes, but I never had gotten a reading or nothing like that. I never pursued it. And then I went to college for photography in Rochester, New York. And I, then I started working as a professional photographer and I was doing like public relations work and work for newspapers. And I found the work really kind of boring, not that exciting. And I thought, oh, in my spare time, why don't I go to Lilydale and see if I can make like a short photo story about this quirky little town. And I never thought I would, it would become such a big project. Wow. Yeah. It seems like there was a lot waiting for you in Lilydale. <laughs> maybe they were expecting you in some way, but that's incredible. You know, maybe this is because of my recent conversations about the classical world, but as you were describing that um, process in Lilydale with the sort of random, you know, anonymous readings, it kind of sounds like or the way oracles were treated in the ancient world, where you'd kind of go to this temple and receive a message, and you know, it was a big part of certain cultures. And, and nowadays in America, you know, it, it's Maybe you'll see it, you'll catch a, a spooky show on television or yeah, you'll hear like a local legend about this kind of thing, but it's become a, I don't know, a variable, you know, it's not really, you know, considered a part of American, the American pie, you know, that image, but it really is integral to uh, the American story. So what have you learned about Lilydale? Could you give us maybe a little background on Lilydale and how the town got the reputation and how it formed into what it is today? Yeah, so that's why I got stuck there is because I realized, it, you know, and I grew up in upstate New York. I'm from the Buffalo area, and I also studied photography in Rochester. And, you know, none of this very strange American history is really talked about. I didn't even learn about it until I went to Lilydale, which is where I learned that uh, there's a 20 mile radius in upstate New York. And the nickname of it was the burned over district. And in the 1800s, like 30 different um, ecstatic or, you know, prophetic or new religious movements started up just like exploded in that area uh mormonism spiritualist seven-day advent adventism which you know is now a form of it is now jehovah's witness uh there was communal living the shakers uh so when i was in lilydale i learned oh like spiritualism was an american-born religion and it was from upstate new york and it was this you know it's this totally unique moment in religious history, which there is nothing like it. And then I learned also that spiritualism had this, a tradition of photography, that they were the first religion to use photography. So, you know, I've often said, you know, photography is to spiritualism as Catholicism is to painting. And this was not in any of the books I studied from. And certainly, you know, 
spending and living so long in Rochester, Rochester was where the first public seances were ever were held. And they were held literally down the same street where Kodak started. So there's like this, there's all these like geographical connections and, um, you know, all of this stuff was just, I couldn't believe how much of it had been written out of history. And then, so I started doing research and learning about spirit art and also all the really famous scientists who were totally um, interested or investigating spiritualism. And uh, I just, it just became fascinating because it seems so taboo and I couldn't, I kind of couldn't believe it. So, you know, why the book took so long is because I had to become like a researcher and a writer because, you know, so in 2001, I started my project and at the time I was like freelancing for magazines too. And I was working for all different types of publications and I would bring in, you know, you bring in your portfolio and usually it's customary. You bring in some personal work and you bring in assignment work. And I would have to do this like 20 minute song and dance about what spiritualism was and that they had like just to get people up to speed before I could even like have them understand what I was doing or what I was photographing. And so, um, and, you know, at that time, there was very little interest. And now, I don't know, I mean, if you have heard of all the spiritualist painters who are popular now, but there's this artist named Hilma Afklint, and she was a spiritualist painter, and her work was not shown until... um almost 80 years after her death. And it was recently, her retrospective was up at the Guggenheim Museum. It opened in 2018 in New York. And it was like the biggest exhibition in the museum's history, the best-selling catalog. Like the like, there's a lot of newfound interest in the spiritualist painters in the art world now. But when I started, there was I mean, it was like speaking another language. It was very, you know, I mean, because uh, and there were slowly in 2001, there was new scholarship. People were like re-looking at these topics and writing about it, but it was still obscure. Right. Mm. It's Go ahead, Roman. Oh, uh, <clears throat> well, I find this work fascinating. I went down the rabbit hole of spiritualism and the history of it and the Fox sisters and <laughs> this, the idea that there is, there was a huge collective of people very interested in this, and the idea of like connecting to these other dimensions right before the world wars happened, it, there was a huge conglomerate of it. And then that kind of stopped it. And then after, you know, that the tragic period of history with those wars, there's really like, it was kind of washed away. But one of the, uh, one of the proponents that I found really interesting when I was digging into Henry Flagler, who was a John D Rockefeller's business partner with the standard oil company, Three of his wives, Ida, what was his latest wife's name, uh, was Ida Alice Shrouds Short. She was a like really big and deep into spiritualism. And they set up all these fancy uh, hotels down in Florida. Um, you know, the trainway, the first train to go all the way from New York to Florida to bring the spiritualist movement down to Florida. And I was just like, 
Henry Flagler was one of the richest people of all time at this point, right? It's the Standard Oil Company, Johnny Rockefeller's business partner. Like he had endless amounts of money and they were entertaining these movements. They were entertaining seances in their big lavish hotels that they would invite a lot of very rich people to. And I was just, you know, fascinated by this because it's one thing for, you know, the lay people to fancy the ideal of spirit and doing it to entertain. But it's another thing to have the richest people in the country also entertaining it. And so I'm wondering what, what have you found with the connection of the, you know, occult and these people of this time and the different areas and varying, varying areas of like money, like the class, what class was it mainly subject to classes? Was it subject to during this early part of the history of, of I guess, Lilydale, but all of New York? Well, um, I mean, it became like hugely popular. And there was a period of time where they really thought spiritualism would become the religion of the United States. It was like in heavy competition and superseding Christianity and Catholicism. And, you know, even Abraham Lincoln, you know, it's reported that they held seances in the White House with members of Congress and his wife was, you know, there's a really famous spirit photograph of her <clears throat> taken by the first spirit photographer where Abraham Lincoln's, it's in my book, it's where Abraham Lincoln's spirit is shown. But I think it was high and low classes. It was like everybody. I mean, it was just hugely popular. And... um yeah, like it's so strange that it was that popular and then written out. Like I like to say, like the word seance is a it's a French word and we kind of associate it with Victorian England, but it's an American invention. And like as far as the occult connections, it's it's strange because spiritualists don't consider themselves occultists. They actually really try to say, you know, we are of the enlightenment. This is natural law. Like we are merging religion and science and everybody can talk to the dead and death is not the end. And it's that's part of the natural process. And to be fair, there are some like really major differences. What like, you know, I mean, occultists or pagans or it depends on your practice. They might talk to the dead, but spiritualists don't they don't do magic. Like they don't ask the spirits to do things or intercede or even, even like Catholics actually in certain ways are more occult than spiritualists because the spiritualist like just opens the connection and brings forth guidance and healing. So my example I always use is if you went to a spiritualist house and knocked or, you know, a spiritualist medium and said, I need to talk to so-and-so, they would say, well, I'll open the link, but whoever comes through, I'm not, I don't call down specific, I don't demand spirits do things or, you know, ask them to change reality or try to bind them and command them. Or, you know, that's a lot of what occult practice does right. with spirits. So there is like some differentiation, but there's a lot of overlap. There's, you know, it's just, you know, a lot of renaming of things that always happens with occultism. Well, it um, 
And with this, you know, I'm glad that Roman asked and we got that clarification from you because it is, it does become murky, especially, you know, nowadays where you have people on television, you know, as psychic mediums and they'll guarantee you that they're speaking to your grandmother. And I don't know that the spirit world works in a way that is so reliable, right? And I'm sure the spiritualists understood that since they had a fair deal of practice with it. But I want to ask you about the painting that you are talking about earlier. Uh, you said that it had been kept from the public for 80 years. Is there a particular reason for that? Was it the artist's wishes? Was it society's, you know, taboos around this subject that kept it from the public? Why was it so long until it was, you know, displayed? Well, so Hilma Ofklip, she was, a, she was trained as a painter and she was Swedish and she started, uh, she got interested in spiritualism and started this circle with other women painters. And um, she, uh, it was called, I'm trying to remember, I want to get all the details correct. But in the beginning, she was doing spirit art where she said the spirits would come and actually guide her hand and create the painting. So she was just, I mean, she was physically moved to create these paintings. And then she kept at it and then was doing it through inspiration of her mind and then seeing it in her mind and then drawing what they showed. But she showed the works and famously Rudolf Steiner told her it was bad. And, uh, and she decided, I forget the details, but she decided that it had to be kept away from the public until 20 years after her death, but she can, continued to paint. And then it ended up being 80 years before, like for, you know, for whatever reason. And I think like the first time one of her works was shown was like, there's a famous show in LA called concerning the spiritual and art. And there was some of her works were in there, but that, I think that was like the first time it was shown. So it wasn't shown until like the 1980s. And then, you know, there was very little out about her until, you know, the Guggenheim show kind of exploded her. Um, but I think she had been in a few shows before, but like since the Guggenheim 2018, like she's a big deal now in the art world. And actually there's an art historian, Marco Passi, he calls her the Virgin Mary of the art world because she's untouched by the market. So it is a really interesting. That's one of the interesting aspects. It's like just, it's completely removed from market influence and um, they're, they're stunningly beautiful works. Like there's no doubt about it. Um, and some of them even like seem to suggest like DNA helixes and, you know, they're really fascinating. So, so she had this bad experience with Rudolf Steiner. And then I don't remember all the details, but she decided that the works had to stay hidden until after her death. Wow. Yeah. I'm I was curious about that, and given the nature of the photographs, is there a certain practice that makes a painting a spiritualist painting, or was it the inspiration and the theme that made her paintings, you know, spiritualist? Well, she so in the beginning she said that the spirits would literally, like a form of automatism, like automatic would, writing. Yeah, they would. Yeah, they would guide her hand. Wow. And so she didn't know, you know, that it was just done through her. 
And then later her process became, they would show in her mind and she would paint it herself, but she would see it in her mind. So she had two different practices. But what really blows my mind is that in the, did you ever see that Herzog documentary, Cave of Dream, Cave of, about the cave paintings? I think it's called Cave of Dreams or Cave of, um, but there's a anthropologist who said he interviewed, uh, an indigenous person from Australia and asked who was painting. And he said, you know, why are you painting? Cause they were trying to get to the, learn about these ancient paintings. So they found the most ancient culture they could find and asked somebody who was painting. And he said, I am not painting. The spirit takes my hand and paints. So, you know, if you look at it that way, she's doing something very ancient right. that other. Uh, this kind of leads me to a question that, came to me as you're describing the burned over district and this, you know, uh, this place that birthed so many new forms of spiritual belief in this seemingly, you know, short amount of time. Is it possible? And obviously the Native Americans were not gone in this time period. They were around and and certainly mingling and possibly even influential uh, in the sense that their religious ideas were blending with the Western religious ideas. I often wonder when these sorts of topics come up on the show, if the landscape itself holds a sort of memory or a sort of energy that groups of people tap into when they start to practice things like the Shakers did when they dance, you know, and get together and kind of bring in this altered state of mind, however that comes about. There's multiple ways to do it, but it does feel like you know, not just with spiritualism, but with several of the other religious uh, movements that you mentioned starting here in America, there is a little bit of a Native American flair to it. I mean, just from what I know about certain Native American cultures, there's obviously thousands of different variations. But uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, there's definitely those connections. But it's funny that you say the landscape, because I have a theory about why and it's just a it's just a thought it's just like a theory but um you know that area has all the great lakes right and it's there's niagara falls but then they came in shortly before this explosion and literally tore up the land to create the erie canal which was literally like the first super highway which is how all the riches of america reached the rest of the world But so you have like technology ripping up land and putting in water and like, you know, we don't see the series about water being a superconductor, but also like what happens when you rip it open the land? Like, what do you, um, you know, what do you stir up? But I do think for me, it's always about the water and the Erie Canal and like it becoming the super highway and also then you, it's kind of like the birth of like American capitalism. And then you, know, you also have people changing the way that they live and going from small communities to more like city life. And you need your intuition in a different way. I don't know. There's like a lot of headspace change and crazy landscape. I mean, the water in that area is just totally unique, just like from the Niagara Falls, all the Great Lakes, 
and then the Erie Canal. So I think that's part of the magic of place or it has to be in some way for me. That's where I always like land. I think you're spot on. I have a small uh, addition to this. And Mark, you're familiar with this as well uh, because I brought this source up before. Uh, The mrdata.usgs.gov has these LIDAR scanning, LIDAR scans that they've done over the map of America showing the gravity anomalies and the magnetic anomalies, Mm -hmm. uh, what different parts and tectonic, you know, parts of the country have higher parts of magnetism and upstate New York is like ultraviolet off the charts of Mm -hmm. magnetic earth and energy. And what my, uh, little bit of research that I've done into this study. One of my favorite spiritualists uh, or more interesting to read about on the favorite. He has a strange little history himself is P B Randolph or Pascal. Oh yes. Yes. And he had this book called the magnetic mirror and they were doing all these crazy experiments with magnets. And so there's this idea, you know, the earth being the lodestone or the ultimate magnet and gravity and magnetism having their correlations to each other. And so when you, when I look at this part of the country and I look on that map and I start to see that it's just loaded with magnetic energy, um, I'm wondering if that has something to do with um, being closer to the veil of this like dimensional walls that are some sort of thing. Um, but I, that leads me into my question of what about magnets have you found to be a part of the spiritualist movement or the practices of seance? Well, there. They were a lot of, there was a lot of mesmerism, like actually in, so in the, where Lilydale was, there were before Lilydale, before spiritualism, there were a lot of mesmerist healers and they, you know, I don't, I mean, they, mesmerism believed that magnets, you know, magnetic energy played a part in the healing. And so like to this day, they still do a form of mesmeric healing they call spiritual healing where it's not with the voice because the voice is more hypnosis it's with laying of hands and touch and eyes you know like and so you know i don't know that's the only connection i know of that remains to anything with magnets would be like the magnetic passes of the mesmeric healing which still that's um it's a huge part of like if you go to a spiritualist church There'll probably be like a philosophical talk, a message service, and a mesmeric healing, like but they which they now call spiritual healing. Was they, Franz Mesmer yeah. known as a spiritualist? No, no, he predates it, but it all the spiritualism was kind of like a perfect storm of like Quaker progressivism and mesmeric alternative healing and progressive thought. And, you know, actually the women's rights movement, one Mm -hmm. of the reasons the women were able to get, gain their rights was because of spiritualists and because of spiritualism. And Uh, the first, you know, the women basically used the trance state or the idea of trance speaking as a way to like flip the script on social sanctions and like be allowed to speak in public because they weren't speaking as themselves. They were speaking at the spirits. So it was kind of like a very trickster thing that the first women speakers in America were entranced 
right. medium on spiritualist platforms. And some authors have made the argument that a lot of the, even going back to the witch trial period, a lot of the ire from the conservative religious institutions against occult or alternative practices has been rooted in this sort of anti-matriarchy politics, this anti-feminist politics that, you know, uh, it's not particularly our expertise on this show, but something that I have a lot of respect for. And I think it's it was really tremendous to see how women have played such a larger role and a more impactful role in ways that our history books sometimes leave out. One example is from Ronnie Pontiac's American Metaphysical Religion, and Ronnie writes about a woman named the Red Harlot who had a you know sort of bad reputation, but that was mostly because she was doing really amazing things, you know, as far as healing and whatnot. But yes, it's it's interesting how we can get a look into the past, understanding you know these different practices and belief system and where they're rooted. You mentioned the Kodak camera being invented in this or created in the same place where the one of the first seances was held. And Roman just mentioned Beverly Paschal Randolph. I always mix his name up, Paschal Randolph. And he was kind of in this weird time period where the inventors, you know, that we think of as pushing forward science, you know, they were consumed with a lot of spiritual and metaphysical ideas that we don't necessarily associate with scientists today. But, you know, how was the early technology of the camera, you know, what can we learn about spiritualism through, like, the history of the camera? Wasn't the camera kind of invented uh, was it, it was initially called the camera obscura, right? And they were like trying to look yeah. for what, what was going on there. So, yeah, photography was invented in 1839 and then spiritualism came about in 1848. So like very similar time period. And almost immediately they, I, they were trying to use cameras to see if they could see the invisible. And there was reason to believe that they could because Right when the camera happened, they also, you know, the telegraph, the telephone, the like recording voice, like all of that. And then eventually the x-ray, all of those inventions, you know, made it obvious that there were invisible forces surrounding us that had agency in our lives and that invisible communication was absolutely possible. And so why not? And what if you can see the body's hidden interior with the x-ray, what else can you see with this photographic process? And so they really tried to like photograph ghosts and some people tried to photograph prove mesmerism or magnetic fluid or like the soul. There was a lot of very super interesting photography experiments going around. And all of that was, you know, written out of the history of photography until the 90, 1990s. It was re, re, like reassessed. But because it, you know, because it was so ambiguous and then, you know, the photographic reality spirit photography the first spirit photographs were the first one of the first things to call the photographic reality into question 
meaning like you can play with reality with the camera. Um, and so, you know, there, there's this like hokey, I always call the history of spirit photography, like the most bizarre, absurd, and like uniquely unsettling moment in the history of photography, because some of the pictures are really grotesque and shocking. And, you know, like with these mediums oozing these, this like ectoplasmic fluid and, you know, like double exposure or look like double exposure at, you know, imagery. And it's sort of like, I see that early spirit photography is more of like an iconography where it's kind of demonstrating the beliefs and the possibilities that spiritualists speak to. But it's also got this very like, you know, is it fraud? Is it, you know, what were they doing? Are they magicians? Are they trick photographers? Were they really, you know, all of that, like scandal. Yeah. Uh, it's a really, uh, it's a really ambiguous and interesting moment in the history of photography. Well, and I think nowadays with our knowledge of things like virtual reality and AI, it might not be as much of a leap to think that the camera could capture something that the eye is blind to. And I recently spoke with someone who's theorizing that the rods and cones in our eyes used to be only able to discern red and green. And now they're sort of going beyond the five or seven colors we can see now to maybe integrate two or five more new colors. You know, maybe this will take thousands of years, but that's kind of in the minds of people who are looking forward at the possibilities of consciousness and i think it's, it's really interesting to learn that right at the beginning of the invention of the camera all these weird things were happening and you know it's not just the camera you mentioned the telegraph and the telephone there are weird anomalies with that as well and there's been you know a whole history of you could call it poltergeist signals and things like that have you know, just kind of mystified people. But when it comes to the photographs themselves, it seems like what's being shown is, has been best described as ectoplasm. Where does this term come from? How did this term kind of evolve with spiritualism? So surprisingly, uh, you know, ectoplasm has like a, you know, it has this silly or like phony idea. There is like a cultural awareness to ectoplasm that's removed from spiritualism. But the word ectoplasm was actually coined by a Nobel laureate in medicine, uh, Charles Roche, and he used it to describe the emanations that he had seen in the seance room. And he described it as like a Mr. Esteem that gathers up and it takes form and takes shape. It's like something that comes to life. And there was a lot of scientists who were comparing it to like plasma or slime molds or like the ether, like these other really ambiguous life forms that, um, that exist. And so, you know, it was, it's absolutely mind blowing when you look into the history that these were like not only scientists who were claiming this and reporting it and naming it and classifying it, but they were some of the best scientists ever in the history of the world. Like William Crookes, who, you know, who invented the X-ray and his, or I mean, who, whose 
technology helped invent the X-ray and also led to the invention of television, the Crookes tubes. Um, he was like investigating seances for 30 years and he was the first person to do materialization, materialization photography where he said he was photographing fully realized spirits. So it's just really wild because the it looks so silly, but these were very serious people, like really smart people were not dumb. And actually, William Crooks wasn't dumb about photography either. Like he was the, you know, he was the head of like the Photographic Society of Great Britain. And well, so, I, yeah, it's really complicated. It, you know, it's interesting because, you know, academic consensus always sort of goes with what's easiest to explain and oftentimes it takes maybe decades after a person's passed away for their work to be recognized and appreciated. And I think that's happening in some way, whether the scientists, they want to admit it or not, but all their talk about dark matter really it rings true to what scientists then were calling ether. They aren't really making that connection. I think there's a reason why maybe they want to appear more sophisticated or whatnot. But I think the interesting thing about ectoplasm is it sounds a lot like what you read when you go even further back into maybe like the world of Eastern mysticism or even shamanic cultures where people have the ability to conjure, you know, this like energy, um, a mist or a light is often how it's described. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, what we learn about the aura or chakras. I don't know that necessarily that's how spiritualists would describe it, but yeah, maybe we're still some ways from having a comprehensive understanding of how it works scientifically, but it does seem like the ectoplasm, especially with, I mean, some of the photos here, and you're right to call them shocking. Some of them are shocking, a little disturbed, but it is amazing to see, you know, one of the most striking photographs in this realm, for me at least, was I think it's best known as like, if you search on Google, a photograph of the soul leaving the body. And to my understanding, it's Karelian photography. Is there a distinction between Karelian photography and what you do with these, Cameron, in the seance book? Yeah, I have one Karelian picture in, the, in there. So Karelian is like a cameraless process. So it's like you're putting an electric charge through either a body or a grounded object. So you may have seen the most popular famous Curlian picture of recent is like the leaf. It's a picture of a leaf with like a, like a electric aura and part of it's missing, but the aura continues around the part that's missing. Right. So, so that it's, they're more like photograms. So they're like, it's like imprinted on photographic material with electricity. So that's like Curlian. And it wasn't, you know, they were doing it in the late 1800s. And then the Curlian, Curlian uh, the Russian researchers rediscovered the process, but it had already, you know, people had already done Curlian photography. Um, there was a number of French researchers too and, and you know i mean english you know like uh a number of researchers had already done curlian photography and then it kind of got reinvented and popularized as curlian um 
with the um, married couple, and that was their last name. Mm. And then there was a woman at in America at UCLA called Thelma Moss, and she had a Curlian lab at UCLA, and she was doing experiments, and then she dug into the history and realized it had already been done before what she had doing what, you know, cause people were trying to show emotions like love and hate, like projection, trying to photograph feelings or the soul or the, or like using that kind of type of photography, but it's a cameraless process. Right. I haven't seen the leaf photograph that you described, but it does sound like scaffolding of the you know the plant right it's sort of and it's yeah. similar to what people who have a limb that they a lost limb describe where they're like oh my i have a phantom limb still i can still feel my fingers even though you know their hands missing yeah and the the problem with the, the phantom leaf photo is that it wasn't repeatable okay like it's not um some researchers couldn't get that effect and others could and so, and then I think like, it, so what happened with Thelma Moss is that at some point in the seventies, like UCLA, like the, her funding got pulled and a lot of her stuff got destroyed hmm. and just, oh, this is meaningless. It's worthless. Like, you, you know, and a lot of this history was thrown in the garbage and considered worthless and all that. It's unfortunate because, you know, as I was kind of alluding to before, I think we're only just beginning to really understand the, you know, the full scope of what this can really teach us. But I'm curious, you know, based on what you just said, what are your thoughts on the mind and our will or our belief? Because I often feel like, you know, scientists when they say, oh, well, we couldn't repeat it. You know, I wonder if that's not because of the person conducting the experiment and their belief. And I know under certain scientific regiments that might not be considered, you know, up to snuff. But there is a growing number of reputable academics and scientists who have written about consciousness and the observer effect and how the mind can affect reality. Uh, and I wonder if, you know, having a bias can affect whether you even, you know, get the results that others have who might not have that same bias. Yeah, but the belief state plays into a lot of different theories. And I mean, you know, it's right in the Bible, like Jesus says, believe, you know, like, ask with like, if you ask, believe you have received it and it should be yours. I mean, this is, it's like, or it will be yours, like, but you have to believe that you have already received it. And so there's, yeah, there's like this really interesting British researcher who's very obscure, but his name was Kenneth Bacheldor. And he believed that like, you needed a belief state, but you also needed to create an ambiguous situation so that, People like people have a fear of psi. So in order to alleviate, like, I don't want to be the one causing it, you make it ambiguous who's causing what. And then that allows it to to manifest because it you have to like welcome it, like let it in, like, you know, the vampire lore, like you has to be invited in. Like it's and like consensus reality resists it and so you have to create a situation that's like a like a semi-autonomous zone where it's like it's welcomed or allowed or like it can slip in more easily and that's with the ambiguity and 
So it makes you wonder about like other cultures who have different constructs, like using language or like what they all believe, like is reality created with through the, um, you know, the consensus. So is that what like, and I mean, even like, it's really an interesting time in our culture because you see like people live in different realities based on the stories they believe. And they're like complete, they can even look at the same set of facts, but live in two different two different worlds. Like the science is different in each world, like completely, but it's based on the story or the narrative. Yeah. And the use of like language and um, belief systems and like what makes things real. Doing If enough people believe it, does it make it real? Like, I, you know, all of these kind of, you know, complications like play into this, but like belief state is huge. Absolutely. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors. First and foremost, the OG, the hit kit, the number one way to get lit. Use the promo code crazy at checkout. You'll save on the best gadget to keep whatever you're smoking on safe and sound. He's got the new Jay Walker that clips right onto your belt. You can go with the Swiss kit, the classic pocket carry. It's an everyday carry item for me. So go and check out Garrett's Instagram at the hit kit or hitkit.us wherever you engage with the web. Our next sponsor is Mind Mend Mushrooms. Go and check out their full selection. They've also got merch, some really awesome sweaters and t-shirts and a blend that is sure to uh, mend your mind to the mushroom ways. Uh, yeah, so user discretion is advised, obviously do some research um, into the laws and such wherever you're from but they're out in the great state of oregon where all of that is uh, a-okay so mind men mushrooms go and check out their website use the promo code crazy and save 15 percent off at checkout and uh, you help support the show so with that folks thank you for breaking with us here if you want an ad-free version of the show go over to patreon or substack today and you won't ever hear any interruptions to any of your favorite episodes of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast and you get bonus extended episodes like today's episode where co-host roman and i uh, take it a step further and continue the conversation in a patreon only segment so uh, stick around and sign up on the patreon or substack to hear all of that and we'll be right back after the end of our ad break here with these dynamic ads which are totally based on your uh data nothing to do with my podcast so whatever ads you're about to hear i have no control over but we'll be right back after that with this conversation with shannon taggart And I'm curious to know how that's factored in 
during these sessions where you've taken the photographs that appear in your book seance you know the ambiguity of the subjects because it does seem like there's multiple people in a few of the photographs others there's just one individual but yeah it seems like uh, <laughs> the nation, whether purposely or accidentally or circumstantially, ha- has certainly drifted apart into two worlds. You know, some believe in one version of the past few four years, another completely separate, right? And it's disheartening and it's scary to some extent, but I don't know, maybe this is, maybe it's a natural process of evolution as well. Who knows? But on the point of of belief and the mind's ability to sort of factor in, how have you seen that play into the sessions when you're taking these photographs? Do you have a protocol that you undertake? Well, I mean, so the book has like a lot of different types of photographs. And one thing I started doing was experimenting with, you know, I started having these accidental pictures, like accidentally making a picture that I didn't intend that actually like spoke to the invisible experience because it it got very complicated because like I was really confronted with like, how do you photograph invisible things? And so I started like playing with time, like long exposures and just to see what would happen. And, you know, I started to get like some really weird results and So I started to focus on getting pictures that had like a dual interpretation. Like you could say, oh, it's just a long exposure. It's just trick photography or like, you know, so a skeptic would say it's just a function. It's got like a mechanical explanation or chemical explanation. And then the believer or the person who believed would say, no, that's actually, you know, you're recording something paranormal. So the more I played with that, the more interesting things got, like, you know, people in trance telling me, like, there was one, I was in one situation where I was photographing this medium and she said, oh, you know, don't take any long exposures because people think I'm cheating and you're doing fake photography. And so just, you know, try to make them as sharp as possible. And so I said, okay, I, I you know, it was a dark situation, but I pushed my sensor as far, fast fastest film speed I opened my lens up and then she went into a trance and then at one point her spirit guide addressed me and said I want you to take one photo with a long exposure and I will show you my mask and I took the picture and the it's like perfect it like perfectly looks like a second face just like peeking out from her face and so the like both interpretations are available And so like Bachelor's theory would be that you have to have both interpretations available because some people aren't, you can't mess with consensus reality too much. Like you have to, it has to have a dual, like you have to have, you have to offer that other interpretation. So they're like, um, you know, they're like two things at once, you know, they are and they aren't, they speak, they attest to the experience, but then they mock it away you know like you could just see it as like a trick and nothing to be afraid of or you could see it as like wow something really real happened so you have to have so in that sense i've kind of come to realize get really spooked out like that oh by bacheldor's theory if it is a real paranormal photograph it would always have a double uh you know a double 
explanation. Well, and I wonder if that's not inherently the catch-22 of this spiritual realm that we, you know, interact with. It kind of reminds me of something Don Juan says to Carlos Castaneda somewhere along the way in that first book that Carlos wrote, which was like, you know, because he's coming into this as a college student with his notepad and he's ready to find all the evidence. And Don Juan's like, hey, man, like the more you try to prove it, the further away it's going to be. And I think that's exactly and I wonder if that's just like a, to satisfy the mechanical scientific materialists out there. I wonder if that's like a mechanism. It's just a metaphysical mechanism. It's almost like a consciousness consent governor, you know, like a not a governor like of a state, but like of a, on a machine, you know, it only lets you go so far before it kind of balances out the this the homeostasis. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to be willing to. Like, if you can go there and accept that it could function like that, then it gets really interesting. Mm. But uh, but other people would say, you're just being silly. You're just being, you know. Um, but also, if you can accept, like with the fraudulent stuff, like if you can accept that it's an intelligent force. And there are theorists who said that an intelligent force takes the path of least resistance. So, like, if it's easier to have the medium fake the phenomena. Like there's even the one of the most famous physical mediums ever was a woman named Giuseppe Palladino. And she would say, hold me tight or I'll cheat. Like she'd be compelled to cheat the phenomena because it was harder to manifest it. So you, she had to have really strong controls or else uh, like she could do it, but it was hard. And also like ideas about like how like fraudulent things can slip into reality more easily because they're um, less, you know, they mess with it less because they have the dual explanation. Or there's a lot of groups who say that the phenomena starts to fake the cheating or like use the cheating to mask the real. And it gets really spooky when you think about it that way. And of course, like a lot of people just won't even go there because it's a silly premise or like some people reject that premise just on its face, but I think it explains a lot if you're willing to like entertain those explanations that then you have a path forward to like understanding the paranormal. Yeah. Well, there's, it, and that leads me into a question of the, the setting of a situation to happen, right? It wasn't just happening on the street, any point in time. It was very important for setting for a lot of spiritualists, right? Like they had to have a setting that almost set like a follow a codex or rules that was known about and worked on like pretty prestigiously, right? Wasn't there a specific sect of what needed to happen in order for seances to actually happen? And could you explain what they are? Cause there's these different uses of everyday items that would be used in a seance that people might not know about. But how important was the setting for the seances to actually happen and mediumship to happen? Well, yeah. So one of the criteria of a seance is low light or no light, right? So that you have like this ambiguity, this sensory depth situation that creates ambiguity. And, you know, if you ask one of the spiritualists in my book, I asked about like, why does it have to be a dark room? And they're like, if you're being honest, some processes you know, need to be 
partially hidden. Like you think about like seed beds or wombs or, you know, like th- where, pl- where life or things where the point of creation is often hidden. And so there's that. And then a seance criteria would also be like a circle of people and, you know, a, a like minds, a like mindset. Um, also that, you know, this idea of like forming a group mind, like, okay, here's a cool example. So I was listening to an interview with Phil Lesh from the Grateful Dead. And he talked about like how when they're playing, the dad was playing their instrument, like the idea would to be like, okay, you make the group mind. And once you make the group mind, then you're, you open, it opens a valve. And then he said, like, I I forget what they call this, like space jams or whatever, where it's like, they're not playing. I mean, that you see them as playing, but they don't feel that they're playing like something else is playing. So that would be like Psy hiding in plain sight. Like that would be the exact example. And I always love to think of like the Grateful Dead as like the ultimate American band. And of course it would be like a musical seance, like because that's like an American thing. So, Mm. but he talks about the group mind is like the, is what, um, opens the valve or you know like brings forth like minds merging in this in this intention belief state um but you know like i'm not like i have low resolution knowledge of the grateful dead because i'm not like but i want to go down that rabbit hole but (laughs) there's a uh, lot there (laughs) yeah 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 because i mean they also are you know there's like uh, drugs and stuff involved and like spiritualism is very much like there are yeah, there's a lot of alcoholism in the lives of mediums. Like if you, it, it's as prevalent as it is with fiction writers. Well, to ground like, down, right? It was in there. If you were so yeah. in the spirit realm or in the ether and you're, you know, slipping into that other secret self, which is something I wanted to bring up really quick because you brought it up earlier with a painter. You know, the arts themselves are a form of, the it's allowing your physical body to interact with a medium of sorts like music very much so painting very much so writing you become a conduit yeah you become a conduit for the daemon or that other secret self that exists which leads me to this idea of you know us connecting all together um and you know, whether we want to admit it or not, you know, beating around the bush a little bit about there being a higher source of consciousness that is not directly connected in the right here and now. And you have to tap into it through a different source, which is what spiritualism kind of was about. Right. Allowing ourselves to get so into the moment, so into the exact happening here and now and focus and meditation and letting go of the physical state in the current moment so that things can come through not only in the group setting but through our through the secret self setting that's my i mean like i got some new ideas you know what i mean but uh, that's why i like to study this stuff this stuff is very interesting to me and i have gone down the spiritualist rabbit hole but it is so it's so heavy for a lot of people. That's why I think, you know, that they can't just a lot of humans and our general populace. It's so heavy for the idea of 
spirit to come through and channel through a condo or there to even be the idea of spirit that I think that we have been, you know, let go of the idea that it can even happen. And it just scares a lot of people out of the house for it to be real. And I guess what I'm alluding to is you've done these pictures. You've done this studying for many years, two decades now. What do you truly believe? Um, so I like to, so one of my, my touchstones, like one of my guiding lights in the whole history of psychical research was a medium named Eileen Garrett. And, um, you know, she grew up as an orphan and she had the, she had this very like powerful mediumship gift and she was famous for like, you know, she solved this or she had this crazy, she was studied by all these famous scientists and she brought forth like, um, really profound information that was like, you know, that you could look up. I mean, she was a compelling medium and she would go into trance and stuff. And she would say she actually started a foundation and like would hire doctors who give her tests. Tell me what it is, because I don't know. Some days I think it's spirits. Some days I think it's time. Some days I'm open to the idea that I have multiple personalities. She's like, I don't know. And she would say, oh, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I believe, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I don't. And then Sunday, I don't care. And I think there's something to be said about when you're dealing with the unknown of remaining in a state of question. And so, like, sometimes I'll be watching a medium and I'll think, oh, you know, they're just playing with time or they're, you know, like. Because when you go into trance, time and space mean nothing. Like when you go to sleep every night, like, so like, are they just playing with time with like, can our consciousness just play with time? Like, is the imagination access to other worlds? Like, is are they really talking to spirits? Sometimes I'll feel the emotion and absolutely be overwhelmed and think absolutely they're talking to a loved one. Sometimes I it seems like phony, like a performance. I, like all of these things blur and merge. And so I kind of shy away from like saying it's this or it's that. I think it's like a both. And, um, and it's also like sometimes I've been around mediums who I think are great. And I'll suggest that somebody go get a reading and then they have an awful reading. And then sometimes there'll be somebody who I think is like just a horrible medium and Somebody will tell me they had the most profound experience with that person. So, you know, Bachelor believed that it wasn't the psychic faculties, that it was just a path that can. And maybe it has to do with like interpersonal chemistry, why some mediums can read for some people. And I don't know, there's like a lot of things going on. So, um you know, there's a lot of researchers who think it's not the spirit world, it's all the power of the mind. And then spiritualists believe that, you know, yes, we have psychic powers, but mediumship is like a higher vibration. So it's like a combination of psychic stuff and spirits. You know, I don't know. So when you say, what do I believe? I mean, I believe that it is really complicated. <laughs> yes, it is. And that's, it's, it, it's just so much, but this area 
is so interesting for people that want to go and look into this specific well, time period of like the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah. And all these beliefs that were coming on. And one final question I wanted to ask you, sorry, I know I just asked you a heavy one, but we talked about the idea of ectoplasm earlier and the gentleman who was coined that term, Charles Richet. Richet, and- yeah. Richet, sorry, my apologies. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Anyways, uh, what other downloads or technologies or ideas or big ideas have come through the use of seance in this time period? Was there any other like really fun uh, discoveries that were made directly through or connected through a seance? Well, okay, so here's something cool. So forensic science... So the guy who invented forensic science was Cesare Lombroso, who's a criminologist from Italy. And he came up with the idea of forensic science through studying seance rooms because he was photogra- He was focusing on, if you're fo- focusing on pr- trying to produce evidence of a spirit, it's like an absent presence. And... So he had the idea that, oh, in a crime scene, you can focus on the criminal rather than the crime, like tracing the steps of the criminal. And so he used the exact same tools he would bring to the seance room. That's like the first forensic investigations. So, yes, innovation is a really big part of new religious movements. And, you know, like, for example, the Mormons they're all into genealogy and they've made all these advances in genealogy because they, you know, because of their belief system and they, you know, they've put forth like um, a new way of doing like, you know, tracking genealogy, right? like, you know, like Scientology, like there's a lot of like, I think of how much Scientology has affected culture through Hollywood, through like, um, you know, I mean, like it's a, it's a big part of like, it's a force in American culture. In, well, in they sense. went against the IRS even, uh, they, yeah, they're incredibly innovative for sure. And yeah, I wanted to ask you about something that uh, you said before Roman asked two really excellent questions. I don't want to cut you off if there's more to what you're about to say, but, uh, but yeah, it, I feel like you know, with American culture, you kind of going back to even the television, like a lot of the quintessential American things have a spooky underpinning, you know, maybe the television and the camera particularly. But if you think about how just those, this technology of recording what we see in reality and then showing it to others. I mean, it's tremendously affected human history. And I wonder, you know, if we've begun to see now, maybe it'll take more time, but I'm sure it'll have an effect on consciousness, you know, average IQ and things like that, positive or negative, depending on the content. But I'm curious when it comes to the mediums, you know, there's this kind of mindlessness that you described it kind of reminds me of when i was a, a martial artist you know there would be these moments where we would be sparring or god forbid it was an actual fight and it would almost feel like an out-of-body experience 
And my mind and training and all the things that I was used to from being in a practice scenario wasn't there, you know, it was completely intuitive taking over, you know, and afterwards it's like, oh, wow, what just happened? And I wonder if mediumship is a similar thing, the way you describe, like it's one part psychic ability, another part vibration, where you're kind of like taking on this higher order of consciousness temporarily, almost like you're putting on a sort of mental outfit, so to speak. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I often describe because I, you know, I had to take a lot of mediumship classes uh, while doing this project. And it's almost like they it's a reframing of how to think about your own mind. So it's like you're taking your imagination seriously and not like in using it in a way where like, okay, see what pops in. And instead of just throwing it out, like you kind of focus your attention on what comes in and then kind of like, like grasp at it. Whereas like a secular materialist would say, no, it's just something that popped in my mind, but a spiritualist would say, no, that's meaningful. Like, so it's just like a reframe. Yeah. And then who knows what opens up if you're willing to like, just think of just reframe the way you think about your interior, um, you know, your interior thoughts. But I will say something else, though. It's like a lot of mediums that you'll meet. Like, I don't know about exactly everything that was going on in the 1800s, but nowadays, many of the mediums you meet, you know, have got, have come to mediumship through trauma. So when you have a traumatic experience, especially as a child, you learn to disassociate. And so if this disassociation or like using your, you know, using your mind to like separate, a lot of them say it it allows things to come through more easily or allows you to access them more easily. Like it's almost like, you know, I think there's a lot of literature about like trauma and visionary states. And so, so there's, you know, it's just like a different, yes, you can do it yourself, but also there's some people are more, can do it more easily than others, I guess is what I. Right. Like it's one part conditioning, but other part circumstantial, possibly more circumstantial for some than others. But yeah, that's interesting. I, I have heard that, you know, theme with mythology as well. You see this kind of thing happen where a figure has a traumatic experience and then they're gifted something from, you know, an entity, whether they're ancestor or a God figure or some other mythological figure. Um, but when it comes to alcohol and, you know, other substances, mediums just have a sort of, you know, propensity to drink alcohol. Is there any reason why you think that is? And you said spiritualism kind of recommends against drug use. Uh, would that be, yeah. w w would you consider like, um, you know, like a psychedelic induced vision altogether different? Because in some ways, you know, people who have like a psychedelic vision have information that's received on the other side i mean mm -hmm. is there kind of like a distinction here like with what's going on as far as information gathering would spiritualists respect information from something like a hallucination or a dream or is it more 
Is that a totally different lane for them? Yeah, it depends on the spiritualist, obviously, because like well, that's one of the primary aspects of spiritualism. It's like they're all free thinkers. And so there's no text. And it's very like hard to um, that's why it didn't grow is because there's no hierarchy. There's no like it's very hard to institutionalize because there's so much individual freedom. But so spiritualism has this whole temperance thing, you know, like a lot of spiritualists were temp- like trying to remove alcohol from society. Like the, a lot of the women's rights movement were, you know, were also aligned with temperance. So like, for example, in Lilydale, they won't sell alcohol and you can't, you're not supposed to bring it in. And like, you can, if you have a house there, you can drink it privately, but it's not, it's just not part of their culture. And so, but with mediums becoming alcoholics, I think it's, you know, Tony Orsler, the, one of the interviews he did with about Marjorie, the medium, he said, cause uh, there was a famous medium named Marjorie and she was, she died of alcoholism and many mediums have died of alcoholism. The Fox sisters also, he says, well, it's a hazard for creatives. And that is true. It's like, there's a, you know, musicians, writers, mediums, performers, like, you know, what kind of role does it play in all of these processes? Like, like you said, like bringing you down or maybe you loosen your boundaries and then you can't control them with alcohol and alcohol is, you know, called spirits. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there, um, you know, I don't know. It's, it's mysterious. Like why a lot of famous mediums were alcoholics or died of alcoholism. That is, I mean, you see that in the history. It's a pattern. Mm. Uh, well, there also is to that, you know, there was a point when alcohol was the philo- one of the philosopher's stones of alchemy, and it was created to capture the spirit, the essence of the plant itself through the still and the process of the al- alchemical process. That's the history of alcohol. But that at one point they used to, you know, put a bunch of other herbs in there and it wasn't like the alcohol that we know now. So I'm wondering almost maybe they were having a special type of brew that we're unaware of. It's possible. It's possible. Yeah. I think the overall, you know, thought I was sort of curious to know your response to is like this idea that there's a quality to the other realm that we can manage through our health. Right. So by leading a healthy life, by not, Uh, drinking alcohol. It's almost like cleaning that channel and allowing positive influences in from the other side. I mean, does that kind of factor into that as well? Because, you know, I think that's a big, uh, you know, thing that keeps maybe the more skeptical or superstitious rather people out of it. They're like, oh, well, how do you know that these spirits have your best interests in mind just because they're telling you what you want to hear? Or, I mean, that's not necessarily even what they do is tell you what you want to hear. But, uh, but yeah, is there some thought to like, you know, keeping the right mindset or the right practices in order to keep that kind of healthy relationship going? Well, so I will say that, you know, I, it in many like Eastern practices or like even Native American practice, like fasting and, you know, cleanse, you know, like sweat lodges or being ritually prepared. That's not really part of spiritualism. And in fact, like you will notice like a lot of the healers, they're unhealthy people or the physical mediums. A lot of them are extremely overweight. 
And, um, you know, I've talked to some mediums and they say, you know, I don't know. I mean, some have theories that uh, it messes with your thyroid and your hormones. Some people start craving sweets, like they actually crave sugar after they do trance work. So like, I don't think in spiritualism, it's not as like a primary part of the practice, like the preparation of the body as it is in like Eastern practices. They believe like their protection is with their spirit guides, meaning like, you know, in pagan or occult rituals, the most famous or the most popular rituals are protection rituals where a spiritualist say, I don't need protection because I, there's not, I, my vibration is higher. I'm only asking for positive. I have gatekeepers, spirit guides who only let in the good. So they like resist any kind of like protection ritual, even though they open and close with prayer, which is a form of protection. But as far as like the taking care of the body, like Actually, a lot of people have noted like mediumship can make you very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And also there's a lot of, there's even been studies about autoimmune disorders and mediumship because, and whether, you know, I have a friend who she has rheumatoid arthritis and, you know, autoimmune disorders, they confuse self and other. Um, so, you know, the body attacks itself because there's a breakdown between self and other. And that's what mediumship is. Self and other is blurred. And so are you more apt to get an autoimmune disorder? Or, you know, my friend who does have one said she felt it was like she had the autoimmune disorder. So it made actually, you know, that blurring more easy so Mm. that, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like, I don't know. Right. We don't know. But there are there have been studies about the connections between autoimmune disorder and mediumship. So a lot of times you'll see healers who are very unhealthy. And I've heard theories, you know, there's theories in other uh, practices where it's like you have to learn there's a difference between, yes, you can heal somebody, or, but are you taking that energy on or are you transmuting it? Like, right. are you... What are you doing with it? Are you getting some of it while you take it out? Like, how do you do, like, you know, because it's kind of like a new religion, it doesn't have, you know, there's ancient practices that are very careful about such things. Yeah. Um, Well, and I think that speaks to something that I've noticed and throughout this podcast, I notice others speak to this kind of thing. There's, you know, we have this, I don't know, as society, we want conclusions. We want to know definitively. And some things are an active experiment. They're actively unfolding. And maybe spiritualism, maybe that's why it hasn't been so prosperous, because it is something that takes a toll on the on the practitioner where, yeah, if they're not transmuting that negative energy that they're healing from others, it can build up in their own system and cause problems. But at the same time, I've had mediums tell me that they believe, you know, they believe that the mediumship helps heal them and that it energizes. So you get the opposite feedback from other people. So I don't know, I guess it just depends on the practitioner and the type of work they're doing and like what they, it's not a methodical, um, it's not clear and it's not like, it seems to be different for each practitioner. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and it seems like it would be that way if it's a, a natural phenomena. You know, nature doesn't always follow a consistent pattern, right? So, yeah, I think it's fascinating, you know, especially when it comes to how technology can show us what is invisible. Because I think oftentimes, you know, we have this bias about scientific materialism and how things are kind of settled and, oh, yeah, we've conquered all the frontiers and we've we learned it all and you know just in the history of cameras you can see how no we're still beginning to understand the world around us and maybe there's another frontier and it's this dimensional frontier you know what's beyond our five senses and our, our ability to perceive maybe we need to augment these senses with technology but as we kind of wrap up and put a pin on this episode what's the major takeaway i mean you put 20 plus years of, of time energy into this i mean what's a major takeaway what's your major hope for this book and, and you know how you hope the audience will receive it uh well i mean i hope that i my my goal is to like to deepen i guess to deepen the mystery to deepen the questions like i came away uh, with more questions than answers. And so I guess my goal would be to draw you into the question or draw you into this mystery or this like space of contemplation. And uh, also I see the book as much about photography itself and the mystery of photography as it is about the mystery of spiritualism and kind of like playing those two systems like a feedback loop against each other and spinning it around to see what happens and kind of probe the mystery of both. So I, you know, like there's a James Baldwin quote, like the job of the artist is to deepen the mystery and, oh no, mm. I think that's, no, that's Francis Bacon. But I love mm. that quote. Like, you know, the job of the art, the, James Baldwin is the job of the artist to destroy the peace, disturb uh. the peace. So <laughs> I'm hoping to disturb the peace and deepen the mystery. And that's like, <laughs> that's the, like my ultimate, like, or that would be like my biggest hope for the audience. I think you're doing a great job at that with this book. It's, it has a presence on my shelf, not just because Thank of its you. size, but its contents as well. It sticks with you. I can viscerally picture some of the photographs in my mind right now. And thank you. Maybe one last question for folks who are inspired and want to get their hands on a good camera. You know, how would one go about this? Are maybe like a phone camera, are these limited to what they can capture? Do you think that we're, you know, we don't necessarily need to use like old school cameras? Like, what are, what's your kind of. I think it's what whatever you vibe to, whatever you're comfortable with. Like a lot of there's a lot of DIY stuff going on with iPhone. And um I don't I absolutely hate doing photography with an iPhone. I'm used to like I like the control of a lens and I like to like um, change my settings in a way that I know what's gonna happen. But I, I was trained in like a dark room even. So I try to I really like I do shoot digital. I like shooting digital because you have a, a wider dynamic range than film, which means you can see deeper into shadows and you can kind of draw more information out. But I think that it just depends on what you're comfortable with. Some people love shooting with the iPhone and I've seen, you know, a lot of mediums now are doing 
there's a whole different t- forms of spirit photography, orb photography, mediums doing mediumistic selfies. Like, I it's really exciting. I do like the using video on my iPhone, you know, because it's really simple. But I think it doesn't matter. Like, even one of the greatest like psychic photographers ever used Polaroid cameras, like the Ted well, Serial's case. So I just think it depends on whatever you vibe to or are comfortable with or interested in using. That's kind of why I asked, because my girlfriend Tara has this little Instamax, you know, the kind of point and shoot in the film, you know, it comes out, the Polaroid comes out. And she's taken, you know, some really interesting photographs. And at first I'm like, oh, you just don't know how to work this thing. And now I'm kind of like, no, I think she knew what she's doing. We're just getting some weird results. And I'm going to have to go and look at some of those (laughs) Polaroids again after this conversation. But yeah, yeah, we definitely found a few anomalies and it's not just because the apartment's smoky. (laughs) We've seen some (laughs) weird stuff, but Shannon, it's been really fantastic learning all about this from you. Uh, You know, the burned over district and the psychic highway is a really fascinating point in American history. And I think synchronistically, you know, you were led there and captured this, you know, kind of glimpse into the invisible and that's something really admirable and i appreciate you sending me the book and sharing your time with us where can folks go to follow up with your work support you and find out you know more about you and even buy the book okay so yes my name shannontaggart.com is my website and i have links to the book and links to about my work and my personal self i also host a like a symposium in Lilydale, New York every summer. And this year is like a two day, it's actually going to be three day, like kind of, you know, uh, kind of like ultimate weird, like uh, fest where there'll be 14 speakers and there's going to be artists in residence and the guys from weird studies are going to do a live podcast. And so like, I'm really excited. That's the end of July. And so that's all up on my site. Um, So that's my one like live event. And also I'm going to be hosting some online events soon. So I have a mailing list. that's like, I have a sub stack that you can sign up. And I just, right now I'm just sending out like notices of events I'm doing on there, but eventually I'll have content there. Great. I love Substack. I have one for the show, so I'll be sure to follow you there. And I'm in Connecticut, so who knows? It's not too far. Maybe we'll find our way over to Lilydale in July. I can't say that for Roman. He is out on the big island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, so not oh. such an easy trek for him. But uh, but yeah, Lilydale's not too far from me, and I've never been there before, so uh, I'll okay. be... Okay. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a really amazing event, so hopefully cool. you can make it. Right on. Okay. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Shannon. I'm going to make sure I link the website in the description as well as the Substack. Roman, thank you for joining yes. us as well. And, thank you, Roman. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Until next time, folks, follow up with Shannon. Check out the book Seance and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was our conversation with Shannon Taggart. Big shout out to all the folks who tuned in and all the folks who have been supporting the show. Uh, last week I reached out. I put a call out to, to support the show and help me get uh, over 100 copies sold on the first book I ever published. We've sold 90 copies. It's a, 
That's a big achievement considering it's only a 16-page book. Uh, it's a small book. You download it as a PDF and, you know, look at it on your phone. I think it's it's kind of meant to be read that way. Uh, I don't have print copies available, maybe one day. But I'd like to sell at least 100 of them. So go over to uh, my Ko-Fi store. The link is in the description. Just click the link that says uh, Scene and pick up Scene Edition 1, uh, the Synchro Mystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now Edition 1. Uh, for just $8 and become one of the first hundred to pick this copy up. And you know what? Let's just say if we get to 150 sales of this scene, I will guarantee that there will be physical copies available. So if you'd like a physical copy available, I did promise that one day I'm going to keep that promise. But let's get up to 150 sales on this scene at least. And uh, yeah. If you want to donate more, just make sure your email address is in there so I can send you a thank you and whatnot and add you to the list of people who will most likely get a free physical copy sent to them because there have been so many kind, uh, generous people who have supported me and this show. And I'm going to give some of them a shout-out. Also, if you want a, uh, a shout-out for signing up on the Patreon or the Substack, I'm going to be doing those shout-outs on the Patreon version of this podcast. So... Uh, for those who don't know, you're listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, the free feed, which you can get anywhere on any podcast app, wherever you found us, you just search My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. But if you want the premium RSS feed that you can, you, you get that from Patreon or Substack, you plug it into whatever app you already listen to your shows on. My favorite podcast app is Podcast Addict. But you take that premium custom RSS feed, you plug it into your own podcast app of choice, and then you get every episode, full episodes, bonus episodes, and no ads. So consider doing that. It's way easier than, um, you know, you might think. You're not going to have to juggle a bunch of new apps or anything like that. Uh, and you can also, if you're a browser-based listener, if you, you listen through your computer, it's very easy to do that uh, via your browser. So... Consider signing up to support the show, but uh, yeah, let's give some shout-outs. First and foremost, shout-out to Hope. She's been a guest on the show. Hope De La Mora, go back and listen to her episode. She's got a bunch of awesome things going on, so check out her episode and see what she's up to. Hope sent my myself and my girlfriend Tara this really awesome, we each got our own necklace uh, with special crystals and beads that are chosen specifically for, you know, our energy, our aura, our birth chart. Don't quite remember the specifics, but that's all the more reason to have Hope back on the show. So look forward to that. Uh, and then Marissa, shout out to you, sent a, a kind donation on Venmo. Uh, Peter Shell picked up a copy of the scene and, and then some. Gave a little extra on top of that. Peter is a huge supporter um, and uh, their partner as well. But I, I don't know if I can disclose their name because sometimes people pay with their spouse's credit card and I see their spouse's name. So I don't know if that means that the spouse is listening to the show as well. But either way, Peter and your loved ones, you're all getting a shout out. Um, and then Warren Vasquez, uh, I kind of can't. 
I guess I can't give everybody's full names out, right? You guys didn't give me permission. So Warren V, I'll say. Warren V. Uh, shout out to you, brother. Thank you for picking up a copy of The Scene. And I don't know your Instagram handle, but I know you hit me up on Instagram. So shout out to you, Warren. And uh, I've got a TikTok for the for the show now. So folks, go and support us on TikTok. Even if you don't use TikTok all that much, if you have a TikTok Go and follow. It helps boost things. I don't want to have to pay TikTok money for exposure to, you know, get a bunch of uh, fake fans in some other country that aren't even going to listen to my podcast. So, yeah, let's see if we could grow the TikTok and maybe uh, put some content on there. I heard a rumor that you're able to put, you know, up to 10 minutes on TikTok of video. So I thought, oh, this could be a good way to put segments of episodes out there to engage with new listeners i don't know how many people go to tiktok for long form content but who knows if we get enough people supporting us there i might play ball and and make some content there but i prefer conversating i prefer long form conversations i appreciated shannon's time for this episode i wanted roman to to jump on uh for this episode because it's, it's it was slightly like esoteric america and also <laughs> i felt bad because i told roman he could help me interview nick bryant and it ended up not being uh he we ended up not being able to do that so i had him on for the interview with shannon instead and it worked out well roman likes the topic he is interested in this area of research so uh support roman he just made an Instagram, and he's got a podcast of his own, Rising from the Ashes. You can listen to it wherever you listen to this. And, yeah, that's it for, for shout-outs and all that. Uh, big shout-out to our sponsors, The Hit Kit, Mind Men Mushrooms, and Oregonite. My man Isaac Lazell with the Oregonite. Use the promo code, um, I think it's MFTIC for Oregonite. I think it's MFTIC. Because Hit Kit and Mind Men Mushrooms are promo code crazy, but Oregonite, Oregonite, Oregonite is, I think, MFTIC. Let's just double check real quick. Every All the information is in the episode descriptions, by the way. MFTIC. Cool. So yeah, you get 10% off if you want to pick up an Oregonite Pyramid from Oregonite. And yeah, more information about that in the interview with Isaac. And until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. MFTIC. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface. They want you confused, like you never knew your purpose. Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine. My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen. Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body. DNA fractal, the universe within me. Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati. Puppet masters know the power of the mantra. Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on you. Subliminal messages hijacking. Perception tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it, and the system is unraveling. I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey. I embark with the squad, forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod. Gotta know the facts, never hold back. Cause I 
ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway, I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. <laughs>